All right, so let me ask you some questions. What's a football team without a quarterback? A rugby team. What's a pumpkin pie without sugar? Healthy. It's, it's pureed squash. It's a vegetable side dish, right? What's water without hydrogen? Yeah, air, what we breathe. What's a diamond without pressure? Coal, yeah, burn it. What's the NCAA men's March Madness without the Tar Heels? <laughs> glorious, glorious, it is glorious. I don't care what you say, Trent Hughes. <laughs> there are lots of things in life not the NCAA men's bracket, men's, men's March Madness. There are, there are lots of things in life that if you remove like one ingredient, an essential ingredient, it becomes something else altogether. Now, now usually though, that other thing that it becomes is, it's, it's useful, it's fine, we still like it. But not everything. What's a lighter without fuel? What's a captain without a ship? What's a quarterback without a team? Missing an essential ingredient, like sugar or eggs, an otherwise delicious cake becomes inedible. Lots of things missing the essential ingredient become useless. As Jesus observed, salt that loses its saltiness, if that could happen, is worthless. So we'll just throw it out, walk on it. What does any of this have to do with religion? What does, anything, what does any of this have to do with Christianity? Why, why, why we're gathered here this morning? Well, in our modern technological world, people increasingly are putting a premium on being spiritual, kind of as an antidote, as a reaction to the, the dehumanizing aspects of modern life. Now, and for, for many, being spiritual means, you know, recognizing that there's, there's something bigger out there, something cosmic or divine that we're, that we're part of, and because we're connected to it, our lives have, have meaning. And so people pursue spirituality all sorts of ways. Yoga, Buddhism, psychedelic drugs, Christianity. Recently, I'm sure you guys read about this, like droves of millennials descended on Asbury College where there seemed to be an outpouring of some sort of spiritual experience that what people wanted to tap into and, and be a part of. I think that actually kind of captures it. For, for many people, spirituality is fundamentally an experience. I think that's what the church in first century Corinth thought. We're, we're going through our, our series in First Corinthians, United We Stand, and, and I think what we've seen so far is that for the Corinthians, being spiritual was largely, not only, but largely about the experience of the spiritual gifts that they had. Boy, and the more dramatic, the better. But here's the question. Here's why I started where I did. What if there's an essential ingredient 
to spirituality, without which our experience is worthless. What if there is an essential ingredient to spirituality without which our experience, our spiritual experience is worthless? The question that I want you to think about as we look at 1 Corinthians 13 today, is the essential ingredient of spirituality missing in your life? And what would it mean for you to have it? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is found on page 1019 in the Bibles that we provided. If you brought your own, I have no idea what page it's on. But if you're using one of our Bibles, it's page 1019, 1 Corinthians 13. This is one of the most famous passages in the Bible. Paul's chapter on love. The rhetoric soars. The imagery is moving. And quite a few of you had this read at your wedding. I am deeply aware of that. And when you had it read at your wedding, it sounded something like this. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. You get the idea. Here's the thing, 1 Corinthians 13 is not dreamy. It's not a sentimental chapter, despite the way it was read at your wedding. It's actually part of an argument that Paul has been making about what it really means to be spiritual and contrary to the Corinthians' emphasis on spiritual gifts and ecstatic supernatural experience, Paul argues, and this this is the main point of the chapter, Paul argues that spirituality is about love, not giftedness. Spirituality is about love, not giftedness. But it's important to capture Paul's tone here, not just his point. So I've been advised not to do this, but just to help some of you that are like more like my age, those of you that are here, I'm going to paraphrase James Carville. Bill Clinton's campaign advisor in the 1992 presidential campaign. Here's Paul's tone. It's about the love, stupid. That's what he's saying. It's about the love, stupid. Paul gives us two reasons. First, spirituality is about love, not giftedness. Because gifts are worthless without love. Gifts are worthless without love. All right, so let me go back and read. I'm actually going to pick it up in chapter 12, verse 31, because that kind of helps us capture the tone. You know, in chapter 12, Paul's been talking about the gifts, and he ends that chapter by saying, but desire the greater gifts. 
But I will show you an even better way. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not irritable. It does not keep a record of wrong. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I don't think it was read that way at your wedding. (laughs) But I think that's how Paul wrote it. If the point of gifts is the good of the body, that was chapter 12, then gifts without love are not only useless, they are worthless. Now, Paul said he's going to show them a better way, but before he shows them that better way, he makes these three declarations. And and notice what he keys on in on here, right? If he has what they think are the really great gifts, the, the gifts that make you somebody, tongues, prophecy, knowledge, faith, but he doesn't have love, well, then he's just a noisy and annoying gong clanging symbol that nobody wants to hear. Verse, verse two, if he's, if he's got all this stuff, but he, but, but he doesn't have love, he says, I, I am nothing. He's nothing, not great, not impressive, not important. He's a zilch, a zero. That's the sense of the phrase. And then he goes a little bit further and he says, look, man, if I give everything I have away, if I am so incredibly generous, not not just my stuff, if I give my body, my my very life in self-sacrifice, but I don't have love, then I've gained nothing. By the way, so much for the prosperity gospel, right? That says that if you give, you know, that little bit of seed that that God will give you back more, Mm -mm, doesn't work that way. Now, these are large claims, because I think most of us might think that if someone had those kind of gifts, it was really obvious, somebody speaking in tongues here, or prophesying, or, or if someone was incredibly generous and self-sacrificing, we would probably just assume that is a super spiritual person. You can see it. And Paul's proof, which we're going to get to in a minute, of these claims is the nature of love itself. But, but for that proof to like make sense and to kind of gain traction with us, it, it, we really need to remember what he was saying back in chapter 12. This whole argument depends on what he was saying in chapter 12, that the gifts are for the church, not for the gifted. R- remember my argument a couple of weeks ago, that you, you're not the point of your gifts. Well, if that's true as he made the case in chapter 12, well, th- well then it's, it's love that motivates and guides our use of our gifts for the church's good. It, it turns out that gifts by themselves really are worthless. It's, it, it's the motive, it's, it's the purpose that, that fills the gift as it's used 
with meaning and significance. Without love, the gift of tongues, that is the ability to speak in in another language that you don't know for the sake of other people being able to hear it. And without love, the gift of tongues is just like a gong or a cymbal, a sound that signifies nothing but itself. Without love, prophecy and knowledge, great as they are, faith, and they accomplish nothing. Without without love, generosity and self-sacrifice gain nothing, he says. Because without love, all of those gifts are going to be misused or selfishly used. And that's not what they're for. That's the point of chapter 12. It's, It's like a like a love letter written by chat GPT, right? How's your spouse going to think about that? Here, honey, I wrote you a love letter. Well, I, I didn't actually write it. I just asked chat GPT to, um, you know, come up with something good, but here. What's she going to think of that? What's he going to think of that? Worthless. Why are you giving me such garbage? I mean, even if it's well-written, Worthless right? Because the essential ingredient, your love, your effort, your desire, isn't there. Yeah, all all the right words are there, but but it, it didn't come from you. It came from the AI, it's, it's the motive, it's the manner, it's the goal that matters, not just the bare words. So that, that's, that's what he's getting at here. Yep, you've got these gifts. But if you don't have love, they're nothing. They're worthless. They're like a love letter written by AI that you try to pass off as your own. Love's very nature, you see, is to seek the good of the beloved. So, so look there in verses four to seven. This is, this is where Paul now describes this love that's so necessary to make the gifts worthwhile. But I, I want, want to be really clear here, and it does not really come out well in our English translations. None of those words are adjectives. None of those words are nouns. The only noun is love. Love, that's the noun. But all the words describing love They're verbs, every single one of them. They're verbs. This is not just what love looks like, considered abstractly and described. No, this is what love does. This is how it acts and and behaves and, and relates to the beloved. Love is patient with the beloved. Love is kind to the beloved. Love does not envy or boast or act with arrogance. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own things. It's not easily provoked. It does not keep score. Paul says love does not delight in unrighteousness, but rather rejoices in the truth. It it bears all things. We've seen this verb before. It's a it's a it's a word that describes what's happening when when uh, sailors use something to, to cover over a leak in the ship that, that bears all the pressure coming in and covers over it so no damage is done. It bears all things. It, it believes, hopes, and endures all things on behalf of the beloved. 
Now, I don't think this description in verses four to seven, this description of love is exhaustive. Love does other things too. Love, love instructs. Love does not want to leave the beloved in ignorance, so it teaches. You know, so we can think of other things that love does. But given the context, I think the point is clear. Love is not about itself. Love is not self-absorbed. Love is not self-centered. Love instead is self-giving. It's, it's supremely good, not for its own status, its, its own place, No, it's supremely concerned for the good of the beloved. In this description, Paul is basically saying, Corinthians, love is not you. Not you. Mm -mm. If they put pictures in dictionaries, they would not put a picture of the Corinthian church next to love. If they put pictures in dictionaries, no, they would put a picture of the Corinthian church next to the antonyms of love. The, the, the opposite of love. I cannot imagine a young Corinthian woman thinking, having had this letter read at church, I can't wait to have that read at my wedding. <laughs> no way. Everybody sitting there is feeling utterly rebuked. This is not a pian to romantic love. This is more like a slap in the face. And if we're honest about ourselves, this is a rebuke to us as well. I dare say this kind of love does not sound like our daily lives, does it? Oh, it might sound like our aspiration to our daily lives, but at the end of the day, it's not finally what our lives look like. Here's the thing. It should. This, it, this, this should be what our lives look like. We, we understand that we were created by God with the capacity to love others exactly like verses four to seven, because we were made in his image. We, we were made to reflect back to him what he is like. God is love. God is this kind of love. And we were made with with everything we need to reflect that back to him. And the fact that our lives don't is what it means that we are sinful and fallen creatures. I I find myself often wanting to correct my own thinking, wanting to correct your thinking about what is sin? We, we tend to reduce sin. We want to make it small and something manageable. It's breaking a rule. No, this, this is sin. Sin is not loving the way we were made to love, the way we were meant to love. We'd rather love ourselves than suffer even minor inconveniences, much less real suffering, in order to love others. I know, I know we love our own. We love my kids. I'm sure you love your kids if you have them. We love our, our family. But that's because it's our own, right? Kind of an extension of my selfishness. I like my kids a lot more than I like your kids. I'll just go ahead and admit it now. <laughs> 
But that's because I'm just, I'm selfish, right? And even then, even when I, I love my own, I don't love them the way I ought to. I don't, I don't live up to my own aspirations of what it means to love my wife and kids, much less God's aspirations, God's co- commands. We are, by nature, unlovely because we are, by nature, unloving. This is what it means to be fallen. This this is what it means to be a sinner. And, And for our failure to love, the way God created us to love, we have earned his displeasure, his judgment. But friends, the Bible comes to us with a message of good news, not just realistic description of us and our predicament, but but good news. And the good news of the gospel is that despite our unloveliness, God has loved us anyway. John 3, 16, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. God gave his one and only son. As as a man, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, was known for his love. This is one of the religious leaders' favorite critiques of them. You love sinners. Yeah, yeah, I do, actually, because I'm God. That's why I'm here. They took that as a mark against him. This is actually the why he was there, to to, to love sinners. We need to understand, though, that that Jesus loved us not just by entering our world and, and befriending us. No, supremely, he loved sinners by offering his life as a sacrifice for us. Jesus said, no man has greater love than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. But but understand this about his sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross wasn't just a display of love. It wasn't just an example of love. No, he died in our place as our substitute. He he suffered our, our penalty. So that, as John 3.16 says, all who receive him, all who repent and believe in him might be forgiven and actually know the love of God, the, not just God the creator, but God is your father. If you're, if you're not a Christian, maybe you're a kid growing up in the church and you haven't put your faith in Christ yet. Maybe you're a visitor, you've come with someone. This is what we want you to understand about the good news of Christianity. The good news of Christianity is that God has loved you better than you can imagine, even though you are worse than you realize. And that if you will simply receive his love, if you'll turn away from your own efforts at loving yourself and putting yourself at the center of everything. 
and, and instead trust in Christ and his sacrifice for you, then you may know what it really means that God is love. Because you will know that God has loved you. I'd love to talk to you more about this afterwards. I'll be down front. I'm not going to the newcomer's lunch, so I can stay. Come talk to me about this, what it would mean for you to put your faith in this God of love. Now, now Christian, those of you that have already put your faith in Christ, as you think about your own spirituality, do you think about, about being a spiritual person? Do you think about your spirituality primarily in terms of your experience or about how you are loving the people around you? I mean, it's, it's, it's striking here that the descriptions that Paul uses about love in verses four to seven are, are I think, rather precisely chosen. That they, again and again, are kind of direct contrasts with how the Corinthians have been treating each other. They, they've been boasting over each other. They've been keeping score. They've been taking each other to court. They've been insisting on their own rights. They've, they've not been waiting for each other. Paul even uses a word there in verse five, rude, that, you know, every mother loves to pull out when she's training her children. But actually, it's a word that is related to dishonoring other people sexually. It turns out, and, and we've seen a lot of that in the Corinthians' behavior, right, in, in, in earlier chapters. Moms, you can still use it. Just know in the back of your head that it will be useful when they get older too. It turns out that for Paul, spirituality is not about your internal experience, but about other people's experience of you. That's what makes you spiritual. Not, not what you're feeling inside, but, but how people are experiencing you as a person of love or not. Where does this love come from? Well, it's what the Spirit produces in us as the fruit of His gospel work. What is the first fruit of the Spirit? Love. John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Our love is our response to the gospel. It's our response to having been changed by God's love. And, and therefore, we should expect to see it. And if we don't, if we're not seeing this kind of love in our lives, that, that would be a good reason to go back and ask ourselves the question, have I actually been changed by God's love? Have I put my faith in Christ? Or have I been just maybe being, I've been religious all these years? I think, I think this should also help us think better about our own spiritual gifts. You know, if the gifts are all about you, and that's kind of what Paul was talking about last week, if the gifts are all about you, then when you encounter difficult people in the church, when you encounter unlovely people in the church, what are you going to do? You're going to take your gifts and go elsewhere. 
You're, you're, you're going to go someplace where your, your gifts will be better appreciated and you will be better appreciated. That's what happens when the gifts are about us. But, but if the gifts are not about you, well, then, then what keeps you engaged when people are unlovely? What keeps you engaged when people are difficult and hard as they are? I mean, I'm not talking about any one of you specifically. I'm just saying, you know, in general, this happens in a church. What, what keeps you in the game? Love is what keeps you in the game. Love is what allows you to love the hard person in the church, to use your gifts in a self-sacrificing way, even when they're not appreciated. Now, are there limits to what love will endure or bear with or believe? Yes, there are limits. Paul actually has made that clear already in, in 1 Corinthians. I, I love the way Tom Schreiner kind of summarized it when he says, love does not bless incest or selfish lawsuits or sex with prostitutes. Yeah, that's, I mean, duh, right? I mean, pretty basic but exactly right. That's kind of what he's been building toward, all those examples that we've seen before. Love doesn't bless those things. Now, Paul points out here, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Why? Because love wants the best for the beloved. And sin and unrighteousness is never the best for the beloved. Therefore, sometimes love is going to say no or stop, or I won't allow that anymore. But parents, you, you probably know this. If you don't, boy, it's, it's time that you know this. Love does not mean always giving your children everything they ask for or want. You, you, you know this. You know that oftentimes it is love that causes you to say no. It is love that causes you to discipline. Children, you need to understand this. A parent that never says no, a parent that never disciplines, is a parent that does not love their child. Do you want to know that your parent loves you? Well, it's because sometimes they're willing to deal with your displeasure because they love you enough to say no. Now, that's not just true of parents and children or wives and husbands. That's true for us as a church. So sometimes as a church, we say, no. We say that needs to stop. We say, we're not going to allow that anymore. And that leads us to exercising church discipline for unrepentant, serious sin. We, we, we don't do that in anger. We don't do that because we hate the person. No. We discipline because we love. And if we didn't, it would just be proof that we don't care about you. When, when, when we join a church, we actually are saying to one another, I might not even know you that well, but I'm going to be a part of this community with you in such a way that I'm going to love you even when you don't want to be loved. And I expect you to love me even when I don't want you to love me. I'm going to invite in advance, before I need it, you into my life 
in such a way that you can say no or stop. Or you, you can't do that anymore and still call yourself a Christian. We, 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 we do that because we are committed to the love that the gospel produces in us. And we, need, we, need, we know we need to make those commitments in advance because the moment that we need that kind of commitment from other people is the moment we won't want it. So we invite it in ahead of time. This is really what church membership is all about. Spirituality is about love, not giftedness. Because gifts are worthless without love. But Paul doesn't stop there. Second, spirituality is about love, not giftedness. Because the gifts aren't going to last anyway. The gifts aren't going to last anyway. Let's pick it up in verse 8. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they'll come to an end. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now, we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. But then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Gifts don't last, but love never ends. So Paul says there in verse eight. Now, once again, Paul lists the greatest gifts, at least in the Corinthians' estimation, prophecy, tongues, knowledge, all of that's going to come to an end, he says. And, and why? Why is he so sure? How does he know? Well, well, it's because Jesus is going to come back, and those gifts won't be needed anymore. Paul says in verse 10 that when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. Now, now some have suggested that, that the perfect refers to the complete canon of Scripture, the, Bi the Bible that you're holding in your hands. And, and so that once, once the Bible is here, we, we won't need those gifts anymore. Others have suggested that the perfect refers to spiritual maturity. As if, so, so once you're mature as a Christian, you won't need gifts, spiritual gifts anymore. I think the most natural reading, though, is to understand the perfect as the consummation of all things, the, the, the return of Christ at the end. Paul, Paul uses a verb there in verse eight for things coming to an end. You know, he says it several times. Uh, it, it's a verb that is typically used in the New Testament for the second coming of Christ. He, he also talks, and you see that there a little further down, he talks about seeing only a reflection now as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now we know in part, but then we will know fully, verse 12. That, that movement from now to then is the movement from this age to the next age. Now, what I, what I think is really interesting, though, is he compares that movement, that movement from now to, to then, from partial to full, as the movement from childhood to adulthood. 
Maturity. You see that there in verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. That's an illustration. He's using that to illustrate what is going to happen. I think Paul's point couldn't be clearer. The gifts, whatever gift you have, however flashy or dramatic it is, the gifts are characteristic of this age, an age that is childish in comparison to the age to come. An age now in which knowledge is partial. And isn't that just like children? Children know a lot of things, but but any parent knows that the children don't know as much as they think they know. And they're often trying to connect dots and put things together and they, they get it wrong. They don't quite really have the full picture of things. Paul's saying that that's what we're like now. We, we might even say that the gifts are child's play. That's what they are. The gifts are child's play. You know, one, one of the most important ways that children learn is through play. They, they you know, you play, you play peekaboo with your little toddler and they laugh hilariously. But you know what's going on? They're learning object permanence. Or they get a little older and they, they play dress up and house or cops and robbers and they're having a great time. But what are they doing? They're, they're learning about adult-like interactions in situations that they, they're not really in charge yet, but they're going to be. They, they, they build Lego sets and learn how to manipulate their world. They, they compete in sports and they have a great time, but also learn the value of practice and hard work. In all of these ways, while children are having fun, they're actually, whether they know it or not, they're practicing for the adult world that they're going to inhabit someday and be in charge of someday. How sad it would be, though, for a child to grow up and never get past their childhood games. Not, not want to take on the mature responsibilities of adulthood. Play is really important, but it's not the goal. M- maturity and ad- the, the, the adult world is the goal. Friends, the, the day is coming when Christ returns and the goal will arrive. And on that day, All the gifts, all the spiritual experiences that you know right now and you value so highly, all of that's going to come to an end. The partial, the incomplete, the temporary will be replaced by the perfect. And that has profound implications, whether we are Christians or not today. If if you're not a Christian, You do realize, I hope, that that what you're living for right now won't last. Whatever it is, whatever it is that you are living for right now, it is not going to last. Now, maybe you're a bit of a realist or materialist, and you resigned yourself to that fact a long time ago. Here's the kicker. What you're living for right now won't last but you will. 
The day will come when you give an account for your life to the God who made you. Jesus said, what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his soul? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his soul? Friend, if if you're not a Christian, I am appealing to your self-interest here. Do not live for what will not last because it will betray you in the end. Christian, do you understand that this life, this world, this is not our home, that this, this is not where we're going to spend the majority of our existence? This is child's play. And we are practicing for heaven, just like kids who play at house. So by all means, use your gifts. Definitely use them. Don't be used by them. Don't misunderstand what they're really all about. Your your gifts, your abilities, your talents, all those things that kind of excite you, motivate you, fill your eyes, make you all starry-eyed. They're not the point. Love is what matters. Because love is what is going to motivate you and guide you to use your toys, your gifts, for the good of others. So I I just want to ask you, as you you kind of practice for heaven, as you think about this week coming up, Oh, what am I doing this week? I'm practicing for heaven. I'm, I'm engaged in child's play that is preparing me for the, for the maturity, the, the, the responsibility of reigning with Christ. All right? If that's what this week is, how should love guide you, even compel you to use your gifts in the church this week? Think about that. At the end of the day, love is the goal, not spiritual experience, because love does not end. Paul concludes that most famous of verses in this famous chapter, verse 13. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. These three things that we, that we already have now, faith, hope, and love, Paul says these three things are going to survive the turning of the ages. Th- these are three things that will last. We've got them now. We're going to carry them with us into heaven. Why is love the greatest? Paul doesn't say explicitly. Maybe... It's because in one sense, though faith and hope will remain, though we carry them with us to heaven, they won't be exactly the same as they are now. Our our, our current faith is going to be replaced by sight. And what our faith will be then, we don't know. It's not been revealed. Our, Our current hope, the hope of heaven, when we get there, it will be fulfilled And what our hope will be then, we don't know. 
This is, this is what John says in 1 John chapter 3. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We do know what love will be because faith and hope now have already led us there because faith and hope have led us to Jesus. John says love consists in this, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. God is love. And we know that because he's revealed himself to us in his son. Maybe that is why love is the greatest. Have you ever thought about what the essential ingredient of heaven is? You know, I started with the essential ingredients of other things, but like think, think about where you're gonna spend the rest of eternity if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. What, what is it that is the absolutely essential ingredient of heaven without which heaven is worthless? Jonathan Edwards observed that heaven is that part of creation that God made to be the place where he dwelt with his people forever. And since God is love, this renders heaven a world of love. Heaven would not be heaven without God. Father, Son, and Spirit. He is the essential ingredient that makes heaven what it is. But here's what's so cool. When He pours out His Spirit on us now, here on earth, he not only makes us spiritual, he makes us redolent of heaven itself. So yes, Christian, pursue the greater gifts. We'll talk about that again in a couple of weeks. By all means, use your gifts. But never forget that it's not our gifts, it's not our experience that makes us spiritual. It is the love of Christ, first for us, and now through the Spirit poured out in us and displayed through us. Spiritual people are people whose lives are characterized by the essential ingredient of love because they are the people of God and God is love. It is his love that guides and animates all that we do. It, it, it should be his love that when people encounter us, they think that person, it, it's like they know somebody in heaven. Like maybe they've even already been there. 
And they do. Because they know Jesus. Do you know Jesus? The King of love? Let's pray. Take just a moment, maybe using 1 Corinthians 13, and just think about your own life and whether it reveals that that, that you have encountered the love of God in Christ. Heavenly Father, we confess that you made us in your image. You you, you made us to, to reflect your love, and yet we spend most of our time loving ourselves. We we, we spend most of our time upset with other people because they haven't loved us as we thought they should love us. We spend most of our time doing anything and everything but reflecting your love and displaying it as we love those around us. Lord, to think about love is simply to Think about our own condemnation. And and so we, we turn to you. You who are the God of love, you who have loved us supremely in Jesus Christ, and we pray that that you would allow us to rest in your love, to depend upon your love, to know your love in Jesus Christ. And we pray that your love would change us, that we might be displays of the love of Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.